Welcome to Elevate Health Podcast, sponsored by Elevate Health of Pierce County, Washington, and One Pierce Community Resiliency Fund, a subsidiary of Elevate Health. This episode features a community care conversation hosted by licensed clinical social worker and therapist Kim Bjorn, Elevate Health's Director of Clinical Integration and Transformation. Today's conversation focuses on the work of Pierce County's co-responders program. Kim's guests are Darren Moss, a sergeant and deputy and public information officer for the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, and Chantel Quintero, a multi-care supervisor. Now here's our host, Kim Bjorn. Hello, I'm Kim Bjorn, the host for this episode of Elevate Health's Community Care Conversations podcast. And our guests today are Sergeant Darren Moss Jr., who's a public information officer for the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, and Chantel Quintero. She's a supervisor with MultiCare, oversees the Pierce County Co-Responder Behavioral Health Crisis Services. And I really appreciate you both being here. This is our first virtual podcast. So if it sounds a little different, um, that is what you're picking up on. And we are all about trying out new things here at Elevate Health. So truly appreciate you both. And Darren, I haven't gotten to meet you yet. So it's been great to to kind of talk with you for a few minutes. And Chantel, I've gotten to know you over the last few months as um, we've been working together on crisis services in Pierce County. So for those who may not know, what is the co-responder program in Pierce County and why was it developed? Yeah, the Sheriff's Department was uh, aware of the situation in our community that we had a lot of people that were uh, having mental health problems in the field. And we were getting fielding a lot of these calls. Um, one of the big factors for us was uh, Puget Sound Hospital was a main contributor to providing mental health services for people in the county and it was closed down. Uh, the, yeah, that the was a while ago. State facility in Stillicum. Um, yep. Western State had closed several wards and we saw that there was a need for mental health services in the county, but also we realized that a lot of these calls we were going to, we didn't have any tools to help individuals mm-hmm. and all we could do was either make arrests or transport them to the hospital. And that wasn't always the best thing. So. Uh, I know that the sheriff was very for it, and uh, some of our chiefs looked into the program as well, and that's why they decided to create a co-responder program. Um, and I got here, or I got promoted right when this this uh, program started, and I think I went to the very first call with a co-responder for our program. So tell me a little bit about your role, Darren, so that the community understands what you do. Yeah, I am... A sergeant on the department and I said when this started I was a supervisor in patrol and after about a year I became the supervisor of the community liaison unit and I was a quasi supervisor for the co-responder program as well um, and I say it that way because they had their own supervisor with multi-care um, but I was kind of their liaison to help them with any needs they needed on the department so mm. I got to train them how to use our computers our radios um, trying to work on getting them the proper equipment that they needed and working on ordering vests and things like that. And um, so I was a, a supervisor, someone they could ask questions about the patrol side of operations and how they would work with deputies and arranging mm-hmm. ride-alongs and things like that for them as they were training to get started. So you're like their first link. 
to the Correct. to the services. Uh, great. How about you, Chantel? You've been help working with the co-responder program for how long now? Two years. Two years. What has that been like starting this program up and trying to get a folks support, you know, engaged in it? So to answer the question, um, first, um, Pierce County Sheriff's Department contracts through MultiCare um, to contract for mental health professionals slash designated crisis responders to help law enforcement with mental health calls. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole purpose of designing the program was to divert calls, uh, calls uh, people going to the hospitals, going to jails, um, being being able to serve clients in a more appropriate and supportive way so they can get the services they need. So not every call requires they need to go to the ED. They um, Sometimes they just need some services. Sometimes they just need someone to talk to. So that is how we can, how the co-responders can provide um, support for the community. Can you give the listeners some sense of how many calls you know, co-responders tend to go to out during an average shift? So it can vary. Um, um, day shift is, is it can get very busy and, you know, it's just, it goes in spurts. There's usually not enough co-responders to respond to the calls, but they, right now, I know a swing shift is looking anywhere from six to 11 calls a shift. And that's just for one co-responder. And so there's a high call volume. Um, Day shift is a little slower, but then, you know, we can have a co-responder starting in the morning and they immediately have to go out to a call because they've been waiting for a co-responder to get on shift. So how do the shifts run? Like how long are the shifts? So the shifts are 10 hour shifts and we, so they start from 7 a.m. to 4 a.m. Or yeah, 7 a.m. to 4 a.m. Wow. Seven days a week. So there's that, that. That three-hour window yeah. where there's no co-responder, and that's where yeah. people are in a waiting period. Well, and then there's um, we also run into um, there's no coverage, extra coverage. Mm-hmm. So if we have a co-responder not there for education, sick or uh, PTO, um, mm-hmm. we don't have people to cover those cover empty those shifts, spots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell me how this stretches across the county. Like, is the entire county covered and like are certain areas of the county have designated co-respond, like more co-responders than in other parts of the county, like like how sheriff's departments run? So there, so Pierce County Sheriff's Department's co-responders, um, they cover all of Pierce County, but Tacoma and Lakewood. Tacoma and Lakewood have their own co-responder program. And they are a little different. Lakewood has co-responders that are mental health professionals. So they're providing um, services, referrals, um, getting them into housing. Mm. And, and they are assigned to an officer. Okay. Um, and Tacoma, they are on a ho- homeless outreach team. And they are also assigned to an officer. And they are specifically going into the homeless encampments, office offering services, housing. And so every community is a little different in how they operate and what they need. So um, the co-responder programs differ a little bit. Um, the Tacoma PD co-responders are also designated crisis responders too. So they are able to assess and evaluate individuals who meet criteria for 
involuntary psychiatric treatment. Okay. So we're kind of getting into how co-responder program might be different from other crisis services. And it even sounds like they slightly are different, even depending on who they're, what district or what area they're assigned to. Um, And so for example, you know, let's say somebody's listening to this podcast and they're like, well, how would I get a co-responder to come to, to my house? If I, if I have my son who lives with me and he is erratic and, you know, at times we haven't had to call the police, but boy, wow, this co-responder program sounds like exactly what I need. What, what is the process of somebody accessing a co-responder because I know there's very specific criteria. So I want to make sure people that are listening understand this is not something you can just request. Yeah. The co-responder program was designed specifically for law enforcement officers to utilize. So one of the things for the public is that they don't have access to the program. Uh, A deputy has to be responding or an officer has to request for a co-responder to assist them and that the reason for that is not because we're stingy and don't want to share, but the police officers needed a way to you or get services to the scene immediately, where if we were to call a, a different organization, we have to wait. Sometimes there, another one that we use, the mock team is in um, downtown Tacoma, and it, if they're busy helping all the other agencies and we don't have access to one, um, it just was easier for us to have our own people that can show up with us. They have our radios. They are driving cars that we purchased and they're wearing vests so they can come out to calls with us. Um, we've had them train with our, our, our SWAT team negotiators so that they can help them if there is a major crisis that uh, somebody's dealing with where SWAT was called out. And we want that resource to be available for those, um, those deputies or police officers in those higher risk situations. Um, and that's the reason why we only limit it to law enforcement. Um, and again, we only sense. have one per shift. So even there, yeah. it's really tight and constricted yeah. and we're sharing across the entire county. I'll make sure that listeners um, have some resources listed on our website um, for additional crisis services so that if they're like, well, darn, I can't call them. What, who do I call? So I'll make sure that's listed for them. So tell me, um, Chantal, what kind of training do our co-responders receive? Because it sounds like they get involved in some pretty intense situations. Um, And so I'm curious on what kind of training folks get. So our co-responders, the training can last anywhere from four to six months. Um, The first part is at the mock office, they're getting trained as a designated crisis responder, learning the RCWs and what meets criteria for involuntary psychiatric treatment or Vicky's law or Joel's law. So um, learning those um, those laws and the criteria that um, people meet. Um, then they once they go through that, then they have to go through a background check and that takes some time and a UA. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then once that is cleared, they are now they can transition to the Pierce County Sheriff's Department to start their training. And so now they have the foundation as a DCR. Um, now they can start implementing how when they how to respond to calls um, when they're out in the community. 
And sometimes they're not always wearing the DCR hat. They're using, they're, they may be wearing the hat of a crisis therapist. Sometimes it's a care coordinator. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, right now they're, they're looking for services. So I can get that, in, I can give them that information. I can make referrals for them. If it's a crisis therapist, it may be just de-escalating a situation, creating safety plans, um, getting them extra family support and friends and family support for the individual who is struggling at the moment. And then they will put on a DCR hat when things all of a sudden become imminent and they start um, ruling out if they meet criteria or not. So those who are listening, a DCR is a designated crisis responder who actually has um, training to understand the laws, to be able to assess somebody for the Involuntary Treatment Act. And so it's really assessing those people who have the who have a good understanding of what they're doing or if they are so incapacitated that their rights are taken away in that time frame to try to get some stabilization for hopefully getting them back into a state of understanding of what's going on. They also go for additional training with the radios, how to use the laptops and get onto MPS. Um, they go through a geographic um, training uh, of the geography of Pierce County, um, how to respond, um, you know, what does the red button mean on the radio, all those fun things. They also go through a driving course, a safety driving course. It's a very cool job <laughs> for those so those of us social workers out there are thinking like, wow, this is like you kind of like if you want to be in the thick of it, we're really working with people that are in true crisis. It sounds like um, it would be very um, exciting work. How, um, Darren, how have the sh sheriffs responded to the co-responders? How is that? of them joining in in support, how has that been received? Yeah, when the program first started, um, not a lot of people were utilizing it right off the bat because they weren't sure what number to call, how to ask for one. And then after uh, the first correspondence, Alma, she started showing up on several calls and people started to realize, oh, oh, she's okay. I see what she can do. That's pretty helpful. And um, since, you know, the first couple months, it's, we utilize them all the time. And in fact, when the program was just for us for the first, I think, uh, year, and then we went to a countywide model, we were kind of upset. We're like, Hey, don't take our co-responders. We want them. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's been great for our deputies to get to know our co-responders and have, mm -hmm. we're able to build relationships with them and they utilize them as much as they can. Sometimes it might just be a phone call. Uh, for advice, uh, and, mm -hmm. and they understand if they're busy or if they've got a different call to go to, uh, the deputies have no problem just taking some advice over the phone. Um, but they love it when they come out. And uh, sometimes I know when I go to the office and I haven't been in the office for a while, I get stuck uh, just talking because, uh, you know, we love having them and they're great people too. Great. So what are some unexpected experiences maybe some of these co-responders have had in conversations with them either one of you could share a story well i can i could talk about um the expectations of a co-responder mm -hmm. yeah. um we don't have a magic wand 
Yeah. I know. Don't they think that we all uh, that we can stop <laughs> mental health and the homeless, you know, homelessness, um, and then also um, difficult for the community and community leaders and families and law enforcement to understand that behavioral health is a process. Um, it takes time for change to happen, and that could take many years. And sometimes the symptoms do not change; they're always going to be there. And so understanding that, you know, just because we're mental health professionals, we don't have that magic wand. We can't. Right. Yeah, it is an illness. That's, and it, it is an illness that has, um, you know, when you have points of recovery and points of treatment, and generally speaking, when people are in need of treatment and they haven't had treatment for a very long time for lots of different reasons, it does take time to help them see and move towards that. And then also, I think also the another challenge would be uh, clients, people don't understand clients have rights. Right. They don't mm-hmm. have to take medication and they don't have to go to treatment. And those the, are the, the right. Um, the whole philosophy is we rather someone participate voluntarily in their treatment because mm-hmm. that will be more successful. But if we make it more psychiatric treatment or mental health treatment is a, a punitive a, a punishment, then we're not going to get much success out of it and people right. won't want to participate. So that leads me to how the CODA responders actually interact with the community and connect them to resources. So let's say a co-responder does come into contact with somebody who um, may may be identified as somebody who's needing treatment, but they're not ready. So how do they, like, how does that connection happen and how long does that co-responder stay in connection with that person? So the co-responder goes out to and meets the individual. They're assessing whether they meet criteria or not. Whether they meet, if they do meet criteria, then they are going to start the process of reading rights, um, finding an ENT for them, collaborating with law enforcement and how we're going to get into the emergency room so they can get medically cleared. Um, but if they don't meet criteria, we're always looking for least restrictive treatment. And so we are, um, we're, we're constantly thinking, okay, what, which service might be the best for this client? Um, the whole idea of the co-responders is not, it's not a long-term treatment. It is literally, we are servicing the client at the time of the call. We'll put in a referral, but we do not continue doing um, care. So there's a handoff. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. And I just want to clarify when Pete, when um, Chantel was talking about criteria, she's talking again about that involuntary treatment criteria that the designated crisis responder does. And if that person meets the criteria, that's when their rights are, are um, read to them and they go through the process of getting them linked to services that generally they're not agreeable to. And they're, they're ill enough that that decision was made by the DCR. Just want to clarify for those who are going, ah, oh, she lost me with criteria. I don't know what that so means. <laughs> um, so it sounds like the co-responders are standing in that role, but, and then they plug, they plug them in. If they don't meet the criteria of going through being um, put into in treatment against their will, they may do a handoff to another agency, maybe the mobile 
crisis team or somebody like that who will do follow-up, Correct. my understanding? Okay. Correct. And we, we work with multiple different agencies, not just with MOPT, um, the Mobile Outreach Crisis Team. We work with TCAT, MSERT, the PATH team. And we also make, um, especially if, when we're trying to think outside of the box, we will contact, if we see history of mental health services, we will try to contact the individual's provider to see mm-hmm. if we can get them an appointment that day. And maybe there's some medication changes that can happen, but we try to collaborate with all kinds of resources to get the best outcome, supportive outcome for the client. Mm-hmm. Great. We'll be back with more of this community care conversation in just a moment. This episode is supported by One Pierce Community Resiliency Fund the investment arm of Elevate Health. One Pierce is a nonprofit community investment fund focused on improving whole person health, advancing health equity, and expanding health access for the people of Pierce County. To learn more, visit us at onepierce.org. So if you could share some significant outcomes from the co-responder program that actually have occurred during the pandemic, the pandemic has actually impacted so many services. Um, and so I'm wondering how it's affected the co-responder program. The co-responder program um, was doing fine when we first hit the pandemic. Uh, from my perspective, I think I switched out of the supervisor role to the public information officer at the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, one of the issues that we ran into last year was the new laws passed in Washington, which mm-hmm. changed how we were able to use force. And one of the things that kind of got overlooked or missed was we're not allowed to detain or use force on people if they had a if they had not committed a crime. We didn't have probable cause to arrest them for a crime. The problem with that is not everyone is voluntarily willing to go, even if there is an ITA placed by a DCR, which I would mm-hmm. say is a very, if if we are saying that someone needs to go to the hospital, that's one thing. But if a designated crisis responder says, no, I think you have to go to the hospital, we need to be able to, to make that person go. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, we're there for safety. But if it mm-hmm. becomes a point where they have to go and they're refusing, we need to be able to not necessarily say using lots of force, mm-hmm. but being able to guide them to the to the ambulance. We try to convince mm-hmm. and convince as much as we can. But when they change this law where we needed probable cause for a crime, if the person is um, not danger to themselves or others, but there's some other criteria like um, maybe gravely disabled, mm-hmm. we don't have a crime it's might not be something that's going to harm them right this second, even though the DCR is saying to they need to be involuntarily committed. We aren't able to use force. We would spend an hour or two talking to the person, trying to convince them to leave and they would refuse. And we just ultimately had to walk away. Mm. And I know of one incident where it was a woman who was um, acting out and having issues with uh, her husband. And we were going as a domestic violence call. Uh, there was no physical violence. And the first time we went out there, we took a report, but we didn't have a crime. We knew she needed mental health services. So we had a co-responder come out, spent two hours out there, couldn't convince when we left. We got called back again. Mm-hmm. And again, we didn't have a crime. So we had to leave a second time. 
then finally the next day when we came out, they're finally able to convince her to go. I can't recall who it was that got her to go. I think it was a family member finally convinced her, but that's one of those things that kind of hurt us. Um, And it wasn't directly related to the pandemic, but it was something that happened during that time. Right. Because, you know, and laws are passed with good intention, usually not, not realizing some of the secondary um, fallout. And so in this situation, a lot of time and resources were going into an individual over a period of time, potentially keeping her and her family at risk because she was unstable, but it sounded like it ended up having a good outcome in the end, but just with a lot of effort that could have maybe been handled differently if you were able to potentially put hands on, it sounds like, and help guide her into into transportation, which is usually, as a social worker who's worked in the hospital with many people that have had to transition, um, let's say from the emergency room to another hospital setting, the transition is usually the hardest piece because the person, they're already not in a good place because they've been deemed not able to make their own decisions, which is why um, they are, you know, assessed by the DCR and they're put into an um, involuntary treatment um, status. And so to try to then convince them that nothing bad is going to happen to them by getting them into the ambulance. These are the challenges that our first responders definitely have to um, deal with on the regular. And so, um, it's just good for the community to understand those challenges um, as we move forward and try to continue to work with our community and keep everybody safe. To end on that um, point, the legislate, legislators are right now looking at fixing that law to, to give us that leeway mm-hmm. we need if somebody is um, needing to be involuntarily committed, then we mm-hmm. have we would have the leeway to use reasonable amount of force to right. get them to the hospital or get them into an ambulance. And again, That's when we say hear. that we're using force, it's the bare minimum. We are not trying to hurt people or assault mm-hmm. people. It's mostly it's grabbing arms gently, trying to guide them mm-hmm. if that doesn't work. Now we're, we're trying to move them a little bit more rarely do we have to use handcuffs in those situations because mm-hmm. we normally can convince people, but it's just amazing because most people will not listen. And then the magic of putting your hands on somebody just kind of changed their whole mindset. Like, Oh, I guess I probably should do what they're telling me mm-hmm. now. So mm-hmm. again, we, we use as little forces as needed and we always try to be reasonable because again, the person hasn't committed a crime. We just want to get them the help they need. Right. And I could see why a co-responder could be beneficial in those scenarios because of the de-escalation techniques and because they don't necessarily look like a police officer. You know, they may be wearing a vest and they may have a, a little bit of a, of a semblance, but we're able to approach them in a different way. Um, I, I, I have a flashback to when I worked at St. Clair Hospital in my early days as a social worker. And I had a, a bigger man, an older man who was, who was confused. And, um, we were moving him to um, a facility. And I remember three big EMS guys coming in from the ambulance team. And they came in with very intimidating way of saying, it's time to go. 
And this man just escalated immediately. And I remember walking in and like getting in the middle of all these men and going, everybody just, just give me a second. And I could, and I got in front of my patient and I said, it's going to be okay. And just because I was there, I was able to get him on to the, to the gurney. Um, and so, and I, I just, so it's good to have people that are not, you know, looking like a certain way, be able to come in and just do what they needed to do um, to help a person get on the gurney. So, yeah, it, it does take, I, I call them human whispers, um, mental health professionals. They have a mm-hmm. way of disarming individuals and creating that rapport with them. So yes, it's, I think it's always beneficial because they have a different approach. Yeah. Um, we did see an increase of calls in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was due to basically everything shutting down. And then mm-hmm. we had um, clinicians, mental health professionals who are doing therapy now using telehealth as right. a way of doing sessions. And it is not the same as in person for some individuals. No, and so then we saw individuals stopped going to their appointments because they didn't like the telehealth, which then meant they stopped their medications. Mm-hmm. And then we saw individuals who were stabilized for years and was getting supported by mental health services now decompensating and now is going back into the ENTs for involuntary psychiatric treatment. Yeah. And that, that's been a conversation I've had with many um, individuals and agencies that it's just the last two years, we've just seen a higher acuity because there's treatment has changed um, and access has changed for many. And we're just seeing a higher a higher amount of people that are unfortunately untreated and therefore they're kind of at the peak of their illness, unfortunately, and need more intensive services. We also saw an increase in not for clients who uh, tested positive for COVID mm-hmm. and there was no beds available in the ENTs because they didn't take COVID patients at the time. And so they were stuck in the hospitals I don't think people realize that either how many people are in our acute medical hospitals like St. Joe's, Tacoma General, St. Clair, um, that don't need to be there for medical reasons. They're there because there are no mental health beds available to meet their needs. We were very fortunate recently, um, well-found, open a unit to take um, COVID patients that were asymptomatic. So that mm-hmm. that helped us so much in fighting beds for uh, clients who were COVID positive. Yeah. Well, we definitely took um, several minutes talking about the challenges. Um, can, are there any s- good success stories out there? Yeah, we have a lot of them. And um the first one I want to share is the very first call that a co-responder ever went to. The co-responder we had was Alma Quinden. She's not with us anymore, but she's still in the mental health field in Pierce County. Um, we had a call of a man who was, um, he had been aggressive with his wife when he was um, using uh, drugs. And she was so scared that she left the house with her kids and there was 
ton of firearms in the home. Mm. So she called 911 because she was concerned he was going to hurt her or their children or himself. So when we got out there, we talked to her and she talked about how his state of mind just wasn't there. He wasn't right. He didn't directly threat, threaten her. So we didn't have a crime, but she was extremely concerned about his, his welfare. And the issues we were seeing was that he had surveillance cameras. He had, again, lots of weapons, lots of ammunition. He had a high power 50 caliber rifle. And so for us, we know that this is just a mental health call, but there obviously are a lot of unknown variables and things that could happen and potentially a lot of danger. So I spent time with the first two deputies trying to call over and over and over again. And um, the co-responder Alma was talking with the wife, getting uh, information about the husband and all the things that he had been doing and just the behaviors he was exhibiting. And eventually he actually picked up the phone when we called through the wife's phone. Uh, and from that point, um, I talked to him initially and, or one of the deputies did, and we passed the phone off to the co-responder who was able to deescalate the van mm -hmm. and get him to agree to come out to meet with us. Um, so she, he stayed on the phone with the co-responder as we pulled in and saw him with his hands empty and were able to go up and talk to him. Um, in that situation, like, Chantel says they like to do everything voluntary. Mm -hmm. And when the correspondent was telling me that, I'm like, I don't think this guy needs to go voluntary because I don't want him to walk away. And I decided, said, no, we're actually going to do it involuntarily commit because we still have that ability if we want to mm -hmm. involuntarily commit someone, even though the correspondent wants to do it voluntary, we have the power to do that. So I just did it to be on the safe side because there were so many weapons. We ended up mm -hmm. taking the weapons um, for safekeeping with permission of the the wife. And um, he went to the hospital and got treatment that he needed. I tell this story because sometimes you never hear back. But it was almost two years, almost two years later that I got an email saying thank you for helping my husband. Um, you guys came out and talked to him and he went to through all the services and got the help he needed and he's doing great now. And that was one of those things where it's like, you know, we're there in the moment during the crisis and then we got to move on to the next call after we're done. And we rarely hear back. We hear back if something else happens, but when something good happens, we don't get those happy endings. And in this case, it took a long time, but we got a, a thank you. And um, that was really special. And that's an example of how long it can take for somebody to get well. And why it, it it's not always the first intervention. It takes several interventions before you get to that person to make that kind kind of contact. But I'm so glad that you got that message because that it does it, it really resonates. Of oh, I was looking at the situation. I thought it was going to go this way. It went a different way, and yet we still had a great outcome, even though it took some time. So that's an awesome story. Thank you. Chantel, did you have any that you wanted to speak about? Well, I'm going to honor the HIPAA compliant. So I'll just mm -hmm. speak in general terms. We've had huge success in the high 911 utilizers. Mm -hmm. We had a list we that was that filled the whole whiteboard it has gone down to maybe, I would say seven now on That's there. That's awesome. We've also, you know, where we've worked with individuals um, to decrease the number of calls they made to 911. 
and from mm-hmm. 30 to zero. And now they're reaching out for support to the co-responders and co-responders are actively looking, calling him, calling individuals and giving support to them. Um, we also have had number of successes um, working with the negotiators um, in, in crisis situations that deal with suicidal individuals and on the bridge, um, in their rooms, locked up in a room with a firearm. And we've had some huge successes in that and be able to connect with individuals and be able to start that communication and building that rapport where they can like, oh no, she gets me, you know, here, mm-hmm. the co-responder gets me. I, she's, she understands she, she's listening to me. Mm-hmm. And that's huge because when you can do that, that's when, um, hope starts to flicker and it yeah. can start changing the process of, um, not being the end. Now it's just, I'm having a bad moment right now. Mm-hmm. And I just need some extra support. And then we can connect them to, to services. Um, but huge successes all the way around. I mean, all the co-responders have been involved in just, if, if I could tell you some of the situations, mm-hmm. you're like, wow. And they're able to handle it with grace. And there's people videotaping, bystanders videotaping. And they're still able to hold their composure and focus on the client and not even pay attention to um, the bystanders, the community, family members, neighbors who are yelling. And and they can start providing that, that support for the individual and get them services. What a great resource, truly. I'm so... Um hopeful um, that our community is going to be served even better. And that brings me to my very last question. What gives you hope? Uh, Some of the things that give me hope is the fact that we have people that really want to be there to help people at the absolute worst time of their lives. Mm -hmm. I know that that's what police officers sign up for. And we face uh, those dangerous situations but again, we don't have all the tools to fix everybody's problems. And most of the time we put a Band-Aid on things or, you know, mm-hmm. it's hospital or jail. So having um, resources, uh, professionals that, uh, you know, they're master's level clinicians. They're not, um, you know, people. One of the issues we had is that um, some of the fire agencies did not know what the qualifications were to mm-hmm. be a designated crisis responder. And they just thought it was. People were getting off the street with high school diplomas and yeah, they know how to ITA. So go ahead and they'll handle it. And when we explained the level of professionalism and expertise that they have, it was like, oh, oh, okay. I guess we probably could take advice from them. (laughs) Um, But no, it's just really great because they, I see how they interact with our deputies uh, and with the people that they're dealing with. And there's just a genuine care for others in the community and having this resource available uh, when normally we, we would have never had this in the past. It's a, it just makes you feel really good that you're able to walk away knowing that you did more than what you would have been able to do in the past. Um, it's a very special program. I think the way it's set up for us is, is very good so that we have um, them right there when we need them. And um, it's a resource only for law enforcement. So that's another great thing. But they're also mobile 
which is helpful because if they sat in a car with one officer in one area of our county, that takes an officer off of the street right. going call to call. Um, so having them being able to respond on their own, fielding phone calls from deputies and, and helping in way more, way uh, a whole lot of different ways uh, is just very uh, helpful. So I, I think hopefully we can grow the program and um, provide services to even more people. Great. How about you, Chantel? What gives you hope? What gives me hope is watching um, law enforcement and the community wanting more co-responders. They're asking for more. They're wanting more. Um, watching law enforcement and fire um, approaching scenes, calls in a different manner, more mm-hmm. gentle approach. They're also um, slowing things down. Uh, mm. on the scene. They're slowing it down for the client so they can process everything. Um, because sometimes some calls, we can't rush through it. Because if we do rush through it, then we're going to be back out in two hours responding to the same call. So that's encouraging to me. I also feel like the co-responders are um, bridging a gap between law enforcement and the community in regards to mental health calls. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I've learned more and I've known about the co-responder program for a while, but just listening to you both, I feel like I have an even better understanding and knowledge of this program and it is a great service for our community. And I certainly appreciate you both so much for taking the time out and talking with me and talking with the community because you just made a difference. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of Elevate Health Podcast was produced by Kim Bjorn, Hannah McCauley, and Robert Marshall Wells. Original music and engineering were completed by Riley Eggy, and the podcast was edited by Joshua Wiersma. Please support the work of Elevate Health by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues and by leaving a rating and review. Please also like, subscribe, or follow Elevate Health Podcast wherever you are listening so that you will never miss an episode.